I feel compelled to say something before we get started, and I don't exactly know what. Only it's February 2nd as I record this. There's a new president in the White House, and I'm very scared. And I have a podcast about sports and a guy who's following his dream, and it all seems kind of silly. I promise to keep doing this. I promise to keep trying to seek meaning in this very strange world. And I promise to resist as much as I can as I'm doing it. I'm working on a couple of stories about gender in sport and Muslim athletes. And um, yeah, I don't know. So I get it if you don't really want to listen to this right now. And if you're feeling low, I promise this one ends with a happy ending. And at least there's that for now. Hey. Hey. Um, so just so you know, I'm recording. I don't want to have, you know, weird guy voice. So let me know if I'm not sounding like me. Well, this should be quick and painful. But... <laughs> I play. <laughs> how how quick and how painful. I've had these two conversations in my life that have really changed fundamentally the way I look at myself. One was a few weeks ago, and I'll, I'll get to it later. But the other happened when I was 18. And I should say that this may not actually have happened the way I remember it. But I was 18, and to meet one of my oldest friends and the guy you just heard on my phone, we had just come back from a gap year, living on a kibbutz in Israel. And we're sitting on his front stoop. And both of us are completely and totally lost. Wait, was this the conversation where I sort of, like opened up about all my years of anxiety and my sort of frustration with not being supported by you? Or was this more about like, we, we got to go for our dreams and we're like creative soulmates? Amit and I had a lot of conversations. This one was about dreams. There had been so many years where we had been looking towards going to Israel as this kind of beacon in our life, like this step that we were going to take and that it was kind of scary. But we, we did it, and then suddenly we're on the cusp of turning 19, maybe you were 19, and we're about to start school, and there was this sense of like, well, what are we supposed to do now? We're sitting on your front stoop. One of us says to the other, it's like we've fulfilled our dreams and there's nothing left to do. And then the other one of us says, well, I guess we have to just go and make new dreams now. We took ourselves quite seriously, you know? I mean, I don't remember, like, a frozen moment where we, like, bro-hugged for, like, a minute. But, like, it was, like, a thing. Yeah, there was some moment of recognition, yeah, you know? What's funny is that's exactly how I remember it. The music swells, the sun is setting. I say, we fulfilled our dreams. And Amit turns to me, snubs out his cigarette and says, Well, I guess we'll just have to make new dreams. And then we walk off into the distance, head high, ready to drop out of college. I come, I will 
So this is First Time, Long Time. I'm Aaron Wolf, and this is part two of a story called The Dream. If you haven't heard part one, go and download it now. For the rest of you, a brief recap. Nate Fish had always wanted to be a baseball player. But when he wasn't drafted out of college, he began a decades-long journey to try to find an alternative route to fulfilling his dream. When we left Nate last, he had just gone to play professional baseball in the German Bundesliga. One of the interesting things about the Germany trip was uh, that I I lived in a mental hospital next to the field. (laughs) It was the first time in years of trying to become a professional ball player that Nate simply enjoyed himself. It was a chance to go to Europe and live and play ball for one more season. Um... And just keep it going, just sort of keep the it's, – it's, I, w- I don't want to say keep the dream alive because at this point it's not the dream anymore. Uh, if the initial dream was to play Major League Baseball, this is so far away from that. My little kid self loved fantasizing about baseball and the, uh, the the emotions that that could sort of stir up in me. I mean, I could move myself to tears thinking about hitting a home run or ma- one day maybe making it to the major leagues and just sort of convincing myself of this narrative that I was going to pl- play major league baseball. But now he's 30. He knows he's not going to play in the majors. So he's forced to confront a new question. What do you do when the dream is finally and totally beyond you? And then the other one says, well, I guess we have to just go and make new dreams now. After Germany, he works on a book. He makes art. He DJs. He opens up his own baseball academy on the Upper East Side. He teaches. He bums around. He tries to figure out what's next. Remember what he said when he didn't get drafted out of college? You sort of have no experience being like a normal person who doesn't have this built-in identity. And it's really hard for some people, especially people that haven't developed any other parts of their self. And so the longer you play, the more likely it's going to be that you don't develop those things. Nate was deep in that struggle, but nothing other than being a professional baseball player made sense to him. He played on amateur teams of college prospects in Westchester. He went back to Israel for the Maccabiah, the Jewish Olympics, to play softball. He briefly coached the Israeli team in the European Championship, and he played on my terrible softball team. But if he had felt like the dream was getting further and further away from him before, now it was this dim light on the horizon, fading fast. And then, in 2012, four years after Germany, Israel is invited to compete in the World Baseball Classic. If you're like most people and have never heard of the World Baseball Classic, here's Stefan Fatsis talking about it on NPR in 2012. The World Baseball Classic is baseball's answer to soccer's World Cup. It was first held in 2006, again in 2009, and the idea is to have a genuine world championship featuring the sport's best players. Countries like the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Japan, Mexico, they're passionate about baseball. There's also the geopolitical anomaly of Cuba, which does participate, and there's the anomaly of seeing baseball teams take the field in jerseys that say Italy or Brazil or Israel on Israel was in a unique situation. The rules of the tournament stated that players didn't have to be citizens of the country they played for. They only had to be eligible for citizenship. Israel has something called the Law of Return, which grants citizenship to anyone that can prove Jewish ancestry. Even a single Jewish grandparent could be enough. In other words, every Jew in the world was eligible to play on the Israel national team. 
and we happened to be sort of in the golden era of Jews and baseball in America. There were something like 13 or 14 Jewish guys playing Major League Baseball. The competition for a spot on the Israel team was going to be fierce, but Nate had an inside edge. So by then I had been to Israel about five times. Um, I had been working with the people in the baseball program there for four or five years, and I had really earned honorary Israeli status within the community. So now I'm, I'm 32 years old. You know, it's been about 10 years since I legitimately had a chance of playing professional baseball. But I get this invitation to come and try and make this team that would be essentially the best team I'd ever played on. And this is when I met Nate. He had just started playing on my softball team when he got the invitation. He very gracefully stepped down from his position as the single greatest shortstop to ever play in the GY Not Softball League of New York City. And he got serious. He had his first real chance in almost a decade to reconcile that vision of himself that image of what he could be with who he currently was. I quit my job at the academy. I started lifting much more. I would go out to the park to run sprints and do my tea work. I was playing in two different leagues. I was playing in the Westchester League and I was playing in the Zoria, which is this all Dominican league out in East New York. That's from the 2008 film Sugar, about a pitcher named Miguel Sugar Santos, who's plucked from a small village in the Dominican Republic to play on a minor league team in Iowa. After he drops out, he comes to New York to play in what is essentially the Zoria. In this scene, his buddy tells him, there are many types that play in this league. Fat guys in their 40s, young guys like us, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, even some white boys. He says that the catcher on his team is a 50-year-old that used to play on the Dodgers. It's all these minor league guys that got released from their contracts. They get sent home. They fly into JFK. They don't want to go back to Venezuela or the Dominican Republic or wherever. And they just sort of walk into this one neighborhood in East New York. And so this this really good baseball league popped up around there. That's from the movie Sugar again. A couple of guys play catch. A young man sets up a sound system. There are food carts, empanadas, some kind of fruit drink. A couple of families sit and watch, and then Sugar meets the team that he's going to play with. This is exactly what the Zorillo was like down to the bachata music and families in the stands. Nate played on the Oakland A's, but in East New York. All the teams in the league were named after professional organizations. Amit and I went down to watch a game once, and it was impressive. I mean, there were dudes there so muscled up on roids. It was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> the one, do you remember that one dude swung, the bat flew out of his hand and lodged about two or three feet out of the backstop fence. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, like, a, like a javelin. To give you an example of exactly how unusual a league this is, one afternoon Nate's sitting in the dugout watching his shortstop warm up in the on-deck circle. There's this one fan, he's just pushed up against the fence, and he like won't leave our guy alone. He's like talking to him through the fence, and I'm thinking, wow, why, why is this fan all over our guy in the on-deck circle? And... Uh, Eventually, our guy kind of walks over to him and just you know, pulls out a little bag of cocaine out of his back pocket and hands it to the guy. 
and uh, he's selling he's selling blow from the on deck circle. So it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was a first. I hadn't seen that before. But it's really good baseball, and these guys take it super seriously. I was shooting some video of Nate at the time for a documentary project that never happened. And after a disputed call, the other manager went into a meltdown that was positively epic, as though this was the World Series and the umpire had just blown the most important call of his life. Fists are flying, curses are hurled. It takes four guys to keep him away from the ump. And after the manager is ejected, he rolls a garbage can out onto the infield and dumps garbage all over the dirt. Have you seen this before? No, that was, that was suspected. But, uh... Oh, there's delays. There's always delays for fights, but this is a little, this is excessive. And look, I've watched major leagues, triple A, single A, single A short season. I've even watched kids playing Little League in Central Park. These guys in East New York are good. And they're good precisely because of how intense they are. The players of the Zoria are playing for their lives. This league matters to them. And it matters to Nate. One of, I think, my abilities is that I take it really seriously no matter what. I am able to take my game in Israel or East River Park damn near as seriously as I'm able to take a game in the World Baseball Classic. I just sort of have a flatline approach to the game. You always hear so-and-so is such a big game player because he just approaches it as though he's playing in the schoolyard back home. But you never really hear the inversion of that, which is in order to survive and have a career in the way that you've had this career, you have to approach playing in the schoolyard on a crappy field the same way you would if, as if it was game seven of the World Series. Yeah, yeah you're out there laying out for balls, sliding head first. No one's watching, you know what I mean? There's really no reason to do this besides to set an example and do it for yourself just because you think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's a beautiful idea, actually. I mean, when you're playing in Detroit for a fast-pitch tournament or you're playing in Israel or you're playing in Munich, Major League Baseball doesn't exist for the two hours you're on the field, right? Yeah, right. no, we would be in uh, in Israel playing a game and, you know, 7,000 miles away the playoffs are going on, but we're out there playing in a... Uh, in, in, in virtual silence. Yeah, and, but, but, but during that game, that's all that matters. Yeah. Okay, this is where I talk about Sartre, and you realize that I took one class on existentialism and that I don't really know how to pronounce Sartre. Sartre believed that in life we swing between two extremes, transcendence and beingness. It's kind of hard to explain, but he describes this scene in which you're peeking through a keyhole into a room, watching two people talk. As you spy on them, you sort of dissolve, kind of cease to exist. You are annihilated, projecting through the keyhole into the room. That's called transcendence. You are barely flesh and blood. You are an idea that's untethered from being. And that's what Nate's talking about when he describes playing ball. His needs, his desires, his dreams, they don't exist while he's playing no matter where he's playing. And I felt this too. I felt it playing softball on mediocre teams all my life. In the moment, you don't exist. You are the game. But back to our keyhole, 
Now let's say you're staring through the hole when suddenly the hairs on your neck stand up and you realize someone's standing right behind you. In that moment, you are being in itself. You are an object, flesh, blood, smelly armpits, aching joints, incapable of thought or feeling beyond the fact that you exist in this moment and are being watched by this person. I felt that too, playing softball on mediocre teams when the ball gets hit to me and I inevitably screw up. In that moment, I come crashing down to earth. My knees hurt, my back aches. I'm thinking about the bills I haven't paid. The world creeps right back in. And those are the extremes of existence. In the movie Sugar, you can see it on screen. It's beautiful. He goes to the Bronx, he strikes the guy out and he hears the crowd as he trots to the dugout. Like Nate, he is annihilated. Baseball outside of this moment doesn't exist. Life outside of this moment doesn't exist. He's free. And then he sits on the bench and the world returns. His face falls. He realizes where he is, how far away his hopes and dreams actually are. It's painfully sad to watch in the movie and it's painfully familiar to Nate. I have this thing when I make a really good play and I think, well, shit, that, that should be on ESPN. And then I get kind of sad and I think, you know, no one's ever going to see it, including me. I wish I could see it once. I wish I could see myself make a diving play on video or something. That's Nate's being in itself, incapable even temporarily of transcendence. Yeah, there's that, that movie my, my father showed me when I was a little kid. It was, uh, it was about a long-distance runner. The movie he's talking about is Jericho Mile, a made-for-TV movie from the 70s about a guy given a life sentence for killing his abusive father. And uh, to get his energy out, he starts running in prison, and he carries a little stopwatch with him, and his time keeps getting better, and his time keeps getting better. And he runs a mile, and he looks down at his stopwatch, and he realizes he just broke the world record for the mile. Yeah. And he just throws the watch. Because he's like, what the fuck am I doing here? I just broke the world record for the mile, but I didn't, you know? Playing in the Zoria, Nate was perfection. He worked hard, he smiled, he was 18 again, he was 12, he was winning the World Series in Boston, he was running a world record mile that no one knew about. He barely existed. And then, the hair's on his neck. Someone's watching. He comes crashing down to earth. It's time for Nate to report to Roger Dean Stadium, where the Marlins and Cardinals have their spring training facilities, to try out for the Israel national team. So there was a list of about 167 guys, sort of in, in order of, of what level they were playing at. I, I think I was number 162 or something like that. I was at the very, very end of the list. You know, everyone else is like, you know, Los Angeles Dodgers, Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> like that. Down at the very bottom, it says Nate Fish, Israel Baseball League. And yet, after a week of playing and trying out... Brad Osmus, who was our manager, called me into his hotel room one night to congratulate me, tell me I made the team, uh, tell me to grab my bags and move them into a new room and to, you know, they would have a locker for me the next day in the clubhouse and reminded me to, uh, to not smile on the way out of the room because there were guys out in the hallway waiting for bad news. I mean, I sort of felt like I had arrived. Um, I was in a, in a big league clubhouse with, with a bunch of guys that had played in the major leagues or in a bunch of guys that were headed to the major leagues. His very first day on the team, Nate finds himself taking batting practice with Sean Green and Jock Peterson. Green is an ex-New York Met, two-time All-Star, who once hit four home runs in a single game. 
Jock Peterson is center fielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, one of the things that's funny is uh, when you when you're standing around the cage and there's professionals hitting, the sound is much different. It's it's really crisp and really loud. I mean, it's a totally different thing. You know, it's just crack, crack. Peterson's hitting balls 50 feet over the uh, over the right field fence. It's so loud and so crisp. And I get in there, I'm thinking, oh fuck, just don't swing and miss at the first pitch or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> like no one swings and misses during batting practice. It's like, you know, total red flag. And I take my first swing and I hear crack, and I go, okay, good. It sounds it sounds pretty good coming off the bat. Wow. You know, all of a sudden, snap of the fingers, and it's like I'm in the major leagues. That's the dream, right? Like, yeah, you, you, you absolutely. tasted it. You tasted the I dream. I did. I, 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 told, I did. It was the dream. I mean, we're staying, you know, in a, in a hotel room that's $400 a night. Major League Baseball's paying the bill. There's food everywhere. There's gear everywhere. People are giving you gloves and shoes and all this stuff. And for the professional guys, it's just a continuation of what they're used to. For us, this is a whole new and exciting world to qualify israel needs to win three games their first one is a breeze they beat south africa handily next comes spain and they win again for their final game they'll just have to beat spain one more time to qualify for a trip to tokyo to go play against the best teams in the world this should be easy they literally just beat spain israel and nate are heavily favored to win again the game took about five and a half hours tons of walks pitching changes uh, just all kinds of weird stuff was happening. It never felt good right from the beginning. To the bottom of the tent we go. Avon Granados pitching, facing Satin. The ground ball to short. Uneski Sanchez throws the second, and Spain wins it. 9-7 is your final as Spain wins the qualifying. We lose to Spain, and we're just shocked. I mean, we were definitely supposed to win. We were supposed to go to Tokyo for the next round of the tournament. And um, it, like that, it was just you snap your fingers, and it's over. You're on a plane the next morning. No more clubhouse, no more spreads, no more gear. Um, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm back in New York again, starting over. Yeah, did any of this happen? Exactly. You know, it, 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 was, it went that quickly. Transcendence being in itself. The dream is over. It's finally totally over. One of us says to the other, it's like we fulfilled our dreams and there's nothing left to do. And then the other one of us says, well, I guess we have to just go and make new dreams now. As Nate's packing up to go back to his life, to walk away yet again, one more time, a door is opened up. Peter, who's the general manager for Team Israel, goes, hey, Fish, you want to move to Israel and be the director for the baseball program there? <laughs> like, really, like in an elevator. And I just go, no, not really. But when I got back to New York... I actually didn't have anything. I mean, I, I wasn't running the baseball academy anymore. I was sort of back to my old routine, stomping around the city, carrying bags of baseballs around Central Park, doing private lessons. So in the back of my mind, there was this offer. Hey, do you want to come to, to Israel to be the director for the baseball program? Do you want to come to Israel to be the director for the baseball program? And so Nate moves to Israel to start a new chapter in his baseball career as a coach. And again, I have such a hard time with this. A few years ago, I went to see my old friend Jacob in a play. This was before he moved to Ithaca and sort of changed his orientation to his own dream. Afterwards, a bunch of us went out for drinks, and I was chatting with an actor friend of his about how talented Jacob is and how hard it is to break through. And she said he should consider being a drama therapist. That way, he could be close to theater while still having a career. And I said I thought that would be really depressing, you know, 
kind of a way of failing without failing. And she looked at me like I was a monster. And then she said really quietly, well, I'm a drama therapist. It was awful. I mean, really and truly awful. And I still feel terrible about it. But even now, I kind of feel the same way. If you can't achieve success in your dream, why keep going? In part one, I talked a lot about my bands and leaving music, but there was a voice you didn't hear. The voice of a guy who couldn't care less about any of the things that Amit and I cared about, and yet played in all those bands with us. For me, it's like a spectrum, you know, between like doing it because you love it or doing it to be successful. And I'm totally on the side of, it's more than just doing it because I love it. It's because it was my only kind of like way of interacting with my environment. That's Paul. After Meet and I effectively dropped out of music, Paul went on to get a degree in music therapy. During the week, he uses music to help people interact in new ways. And on the weekends, he plays in a Grateful Dead cover band. In some ways, Paul and that friend of Jacob's that I insulted and, and Nate, they're all doing the same thing. They're using the things that they most wanted, but in a new way. To me, it's dream adjacent. You know, it's not quite the real thing. But Paul feels no angst about it for one simple reason. The dream is to just never stop playing music. The most depressing moments of my life are when I have to, like, put something else in front of music. As a kid, I really had to find my own ground. That was something, that was a world that made sense to me from the aesthetics of, a, of production to written music and how there's rules and how it all kind of helps me relate to the world. And as a music therapist now, I, I use it a lot to help explain it to others, to give them a sense of comfort, not this just disorganized chaos. Talking to Paul, I realized Nate's dream isn't just to play in the majors. It's to always have baseball in his life, just like Paul's dream is to always have music in his. Nate works in Israel tirelessly for three years. He grows the entire Israel baseball system by 50%. He starts a baseball academy. He writes coaching manuals, creates an internship program with American collegiate players to come over. He starts a coexistence program, and he starts to coach the Israel national team in the European Championship. And then, in 2016, Nate is given another chance for redemption. Israel is once again invited to try to qualify for the World Baseball Classic. And we're playing in Brooklyn. So I've been sort of led around the world by baseball for the last 10 years, and it has now led me home, essentially, back to Brooklyn. You know, my family's there. My friends are there. I'm back in New York. Now I'm not, I'm not, I'm not on the team anymore. Now I'm on the coaching staff. I'm throwing batting practice. I'm working with infielders and hitters, and I'm coaching first base during the games. We win the first two games. We go to the finals. The team we beat in the first game, Great Britain, we play them again in the final. So now we're in the final, just like we were in 2012, against a team that we've already beaten, just like we were in 2012. We're literally in the exact same position. And in the fourth inning of the game, we're still tied at zero. And I'm thinking, oh boy, this is way too close. I'm in the dugout in the first base coaching box. I'm kind of mumbling to the other coaches, how are we not hitting this fucking guy? I think we're facing a gym teacher from California. <laughs> who's <pit> <laughs> Seriously. He's a PE teacher 
he's got a, a British passport or some shit. He's out there chucking it. I mean, they've used all their pitchers and, and they're and it's zero zero. And I'm thinking, oh my god, this is it's going to happen again. Um, and we sort of break out of it. Um, and the story sort of had come full circle from losing in 2012 to moving to Israel for three years to winning in 2016. And uh, so now we're, we're getting ready to go to Korea for the World Baseball Classic and, uh, at the end of February, which is not that far away in about three months. The place is already sold out. It's going to be nuts. I mean, they take their baseball really seriously. You excited? Yeah. Yeah, real excited. Yeah. I mean, I still, as embarrassing as this is, I literally still have dreams that I'm playing major league baseball. And in the dreams, I'm thinking, I can't believe this isn't a dream. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I really made it to the big leagues. This is really it. I have these fucking dreams all the time, dude. I literally have these dreams. Yeah, of course. Look through the keyhole. You are free of all worry and pain and thought. Hope. Someone watches you. You remember you exist. You come crashing back down to your essential beingness. Disappointment. You swing back and forth over and over again. And what are you going to do between now and, and February? I'm going to winter meetings on Sunday to try and get a job in pro ball. Winter meetings are a huge convention of Major League Baseball. Hundreds of scouts, coaches, and managers gather together to make trades, hire and fire, and hang out. Nate called me right after he left. Coach Aaron. (laughs) Nate, how's it going? That's literally how I have you in my phone. It comes up. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So how was winter meetings? There's something about it. Outside of the context of baseball, not talking about the coaches with the players they're also unimpressive in a way they're amazing what they can do on a baseball field there's literally nothing cool about <laughs> what is going on at these so on the social level at these events i mean nothing you know the way nothing about the music or the clothing or what people are drinking or talking about or anything yeah i'm, I'm picturing light beers and like tan suits and just like ill-fitting trousers and people just kind of like talking about nothing yeah there's lots of kids knocking around the lobby wearing suits and backpacks with, like, shitty black dress shoes on. <laughs> Nate had a few meetings, but it was a small conversation with Matt Haas, a scout for the Orioles, that changed everything that we've heard up to now. The guy had a huge a huge lipper in in this cup, and he's spitting in this cup the whole time. <laughs> I mean, just fucking filthy, huge lipper, like horseshoe tobacco all up in his teeth, but a super good dude. And he's like, yeah, I saw, I saw you play at college. I was going to sign you, man. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, it was just between you and this one other guy, and they just decided to go with the other guy, but we had the reports all written up. He was scouting for the Red Sox at the time. He said that he told him I could catch and throw and that I wasn't going to hit a lot. And I go, man, I got so much better at hitting after college. He goes, yeah, you hear about that all the time. You know, guys can't hit when they're younger. They learn how to hit when they're a little bit older. It happens that way. But pretty much said it was just me and one other guy, and they decided to go with the other guy. And I was like, oh, my God, don't even tell me this fucking story. Dude, that is insane. What did you? And the Boston Red Sox. Did you just crack a joke and just try to, like, move on, or were you kind of winded? Yeah. I was, no, I was so busy throughout the day. I didn't think about it until I got back to the hotel later that night. I thought about it, and it made me feel fucking sick. 
For what it's worth, I looked it up, and the Red Sox did sign two catchers the year Nate graduated. Neither one of them made it to the big leagues. And in some ways, that's just it. All of this is luck. You put yourself out there, you work as hard as you can, hope it all lines up in the right way for you at the right time. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll be so close that you can feel it. Other times you feel like you couldn't be farther away from it all. But at no point along the way do you really ever know where you stand. Nate stood on the precipice, decided his playing days were over, and then went on to play for another 20 years, driven to prove that he was good enough. When all along it came down to a hunch that one guy had, which made the Red Sox sign two other catchers instead of him. A hunch. And that brings me to the other conversation that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. My friend Jack told me recently that, in some ways, the pursuit of a dream is the attempt to match the image one holds of oneself internally to the external world's view of them. I feel like a writer and storyteller and filmmaker and musician and, I guess, also podcaster, and so I slowly move my life towards that goal. But then Jack said this other thing. Happiness, being content, is not always predicated on success. After all, there is no success. There's always more to be done. There's always another hurdle ahead. But happiness, contentedness, is just the feeling that your actions match the direction your internal compass is pointing. That you're facing the future that you picture for yourself. That's how you never let go of a dream. And that's how you avoid the extremes of Sartre's transcendence and beingness. Your dreams aren't there for you to be a goal line. They're there as a compass, pointing you in the right direction, guiding you towards happiness. And that's the only magic that Nate has. He knows where his compass is pointing, and he follows it, regardless of how lost it gets him. I don't know. I just have have a very, a real passion for the game. And I just keep on getting these phone calls and keep on getting these opportunities. My real contribution to this story is that I just I say yes to them. Yeah, dude, you know me better than like my best friends and family at this point. <laughs> Seriously. All right, dude. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. I'll say just one last thing. Jack's been through a lot, and when I asked them what their dream was, Jack said, I'm just kind of figuring that out, but for a long time, the idea of having a dream was sort of a dream for me. If there's one thing that I'm going to take away from Nate's story, it's that when I feel angsty and oppressed by my dreams, I'm going to remember that it's a privilege to have them. It's a privilege to yearn and to strive. So enjoy it, and say yes. There's so much more to learn about Nate. You can check out his art, his book, which is hilarious. You can see a short film about him and so much more at kingofjewishbaseball.com. You can find me on Twitter at Aaron Wolf. That's Aaron with two A's and Wolf with an E at the end. And one more piece of business. I made two critical errors when I started First Time Long Time. The first was I didn't check to see if there were other podcasts with the same name as mine, and there are two. But the second was, it turns out that the pros produce a bunch of these in a row, and then they release them slowly, not just trying to play catch-up all the time. 
So, in an effort to get on a more regular release schedule, there won't be any new episodes for a little while, but then there will be many. Hooray! In the meanwhile, make sure you're subscribed in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and spread the word. The more listeners, the better, I think. If you have any questions or if you have a story about how sports impacted your life, drop me a line at firsttimelongtimestories at gmail.com or tweet at me. That's what the kids do, right? Still have no sign-off, so instead, here's an Australian guy watching his buddy hit a home run. See ya! Thanks for listening.